Mumbrella's Finance Marketing Summit is returning August 11th as an in-person event, bringing together the industry's most influential thinkers and leaders to discuss the tough questions and dissect the latest trends across all areas of banking, superannuation, finance, and insurance. Being held at the Four Seasons Hotel in Sydney, this summit will be a great opportunity for you and your team to have a fun day out and get up to date with all the latest in finance marketing and digital developments, which will help you to supercharge your marketing strategy and bring new thinking into your ways of working for the new financial year. Plus, if you buy tickets before June 30, you can save at least $200 per ticket. Buy tickets at mumbrella.com.au forward slash finance. Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin. How do you get young Australians interested in news and politics? This is a question that's been troubling news publishers for some time. Today, you'll hear from The Guardian Australia's Matilda Bosley about how she and The Guardian are re-engaging young Aussies through social media. But first, you'll hear from Nine's former CEO, Hugh Marks, and Carl Fennessy, co-founder and CEO of Endemol Shine Australia, on the pair's new venture, full-service TV studio, Dream Chaser. And later, an interview with the IAB Australia's Gay Leroy. Sadly, no panel today, just a smorgasbord of guests, so we will crack straight into it. Hi, Hugh and Carl. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Callum. Hi, Callum. So you've just launched uh, Dream Chaser, full-service production and distribution studio, the first of its kind in Australia. Why was now the time to launch this here locally? Uh, well, just look what's happening in the world at the moment. Um, you know, television consumption is going through, you know, a real change and, you know, consumers are, are loving the ability to access you know, great shows at their time of choosing and their channel of choice. And um, what we're seeing is Australia playing a bigger and bigger role in that global world. And, um, you know, with the things that can now be done, um, you know, tapping into an infrastructure that means we can access that global market and support our creative partners as we go through that is an opportunity um, that we've both been thinking about for a while and, and, and you know, really pleased to have the opportunity to do that now with Endeavour. And, Carl, are you expecting potentially over the next 12 months uh, a potential contraction in the market? You know, today we saw Netflix announcing that it would be pulling back on its content spend. No, I don't think so, Callum. Look, I, I think all markets are going to be remain very competitive. Obviously, there's you know there's increasing numbers of streamers coming into the international marketplace. So I'm not surprised that a lot of the players are you know um, are finding it very competitive. But I think what that means is that you know they're all going to be continuing to invest in content to continue to attract audiences. And and as Hugh said, I think what we're seeing at the moment is not only a you know, a great volume of, of great stuff being produced internationally, but also across multiple genres. So I think um, the time, the timing for us feels just right for this. And I, and I reckon on that point as well, Callum, what you'll see is, you know, a world where, you know, price, you know, we, we want to make premium shows and that's the world that we live in. Um, but being able to do that on a basis where maybe we can bring some money to the table as well for the streamers beyond what there is today and using the Australian marketplace as a kind of opportunity to do that, I think, you know, places us into that place right now where people are probably going to look for 
other options as to how to fund these shows and, you know, we know we can deliver that solution. So um, I think that is totally in, li- in line with what we think would ha- what we thought would happen at this stage yeah. of the market development. And the, the venture was sort of uh, first hinted about six months ago in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, obviously, since then, the deal with Endeavour. Have, have, have you had any approaches from, I guess, maybe foundation clients, maybe any of the streaming services since then, or is that kind of still under wraps for now? Oh, no, I think we needed to get our infrastructure in place and, you know, that's ultimately for us what's important when we go and talk to creative partners, like here's who Dream Chaser is and what we can do. And we need those creative partners and their projects as well to go and talk to customers about what we might be able to do for them. So um, first step first was to build the model that we're going to operate on and, you know, that's taken us you know, a few months just to work through those steps and, um, you know, we'll be reaching out to to uh, all buyers over the course of the next month or so. It's, um, I, I guess, it, it's funny how things play out at the time last year, about 12 months ago, uh, Carl, you were sort of rumoured to be the man taking over from, from Hugh. Was that maybe a little bit of a serendipitous coming together for you now or was that, uh, how, how, did, how did that play out? Possibly. I mean, Hugh and I have known each other for a long time, Cal. I mean, we were sort of, you know, she, when I first got to know Hugh, he was actually running Southern Star at the time, before, even I think before it was Endemol, Southern Star Endemol at the time. So we go back a fair way. And then, of course, um, you know, Hugh, through his, his tenure as a board member at Nine and then as CEO at Nine, um, we've always had a really close working um, friendship and relationship. And I think for us, we've, this is something that we've talked about off and on over you know, a significant period of time. In fact, you know, dating several years back, you know, just as a as the concept about having a, a genuine Australian studio in the marketplace, we've always felt there was a great opportunity for that. Um, and I guess with, you know, Hugh stepping down from nine and, and myself and, and my brother Mark stepping down from uh, Endemol Shine 12 or so months ago, the timing was just right. So it's, um, and I think we're both, you know, Hugh and I talked about it a lot at the outset. So I think we're both at the right stage of our careers to do this now. This, this feels really right to us both. And Carl, 12, 12 years ago, I think it was, Tim Burrows asked you on uh, an umbrella video, what makes good TV? A lot's probably changed since then. Has your, has, do, I'm not sure you would remember your answer, but do you think your answer has changed? Uh, gee, I, I can't remember. I actually do remember being interviewed by Tim Burrows 12 years ago. Um, I'd like to think that my answer is um, uh, what makes good TV. Good people make good TV. Um, I think that's uh, that from, from behind the camera. I know that to be the case. Uh, I still think it's just great storytelling uh, at the end of the day, Callum. I think, you know, your good story is well told, now, regardless of the genre, whether that's, you know, drama, whether it's, you know, factual documentary, whether it's, you know, non-scripted reality-style television. Um, a good story well told um, is what makes good TV. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, you're so right as well. There's lots of good ideas, uh, but there aren't necessarily a lot of people who are capable of realising those ideas into a global market, so good people, you know, and and we're now in that place where, you know, we're effectively open for business um, for people who are out there in our industry who, you know, think they're, they're the sort of people that are able to execute something of the scale and vision that, you know, we want to take to that global market. So, you know, our model is we're not in competition with, you know, other producers. We're here to help enable them to basically realise the best that they can be. And so um, so now's the time to uh, to reach out and uh, and share your thoughts with us. 
it's funny that the answer is uh you know uh, about good people and storytelling that is i'll tell you quite similar to what the answer was 12 years ago so it's good that there's some consistency there, there. what do networks want to buy show it all right yeah, that doesn't change much either and I was like, so, um, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But do, you know, do you know the funny thing is, I and I'm being quite serious now, I think if you asked me that question 12 years from now, the answer will still be the same. And I think, I think it will be as relevant 12 years from now as it was 12 years ago because it really is the centre of what, of what great content is about. It's made by really great, passionate, talented people who can execute and, and tell a story incredibly well. And I really don't think that's going to change. Not easy to so, do. I was going to say, it's a very interesting time that you've launched this venture. We had a guest on the podcast last week, and I think um, the quote he said was that content isn't um, isn't just the king now, it's the whole game. You know, we kind of alluded at the start um, of the conversation there about the, the sort of the streaming wars kind of especially heating up here in Australia. It would be interesting to see or to hear from both of you just finally what you think that that sort of um, that market will look like in the next 12 to 24 months and then maybe what you how you expect Dream Chaser to um, to fit in there. Yeah, do you want to go first? No, no, you want to go? Well, I mean, I think the exciting thing, you know, having been around this business for a while is, you know, we used to have, you know, a limited number of buyers for content originated from this market and it's been that way for you know, that's the thing that's changed so much in the last five, last two years, let alone the last five years. So now to be able to, you know, go into a market where there's literally probably 20 or 30 different ways to finance a premium piece of content and to be able to tap into a market, whether that's in Europe, the UK, the US, you know, global streamers, you know, local networks, um, you know that's that's a huge change in the you know op, um, you know the opportunity for Australian creatives and you know it's at the same time when some of the people that you know we've both known who've come up through the industry here have been involved in you know some of the biggest shows around the world so um, all the elements are there to to really you know supercharge um, what can be done from this market I guess you know we're trying to put ourselves in a position to really help people do that and, and to make that happen. And that's an incredibly exciting time for us. And I think what you'll see is, and you're already seeing, you know, there's already great shows being originated from this market, but you're just going to see that, you know, to an even greater degree because we have an absolute belief that, you know, anything can be achieved from, from here. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't be in this business if we didn't believe that. Couldn't agree more. And I just would only add that with the other thing we've seen, Callum, is an incredible flattening of the world from a content perspective now. And when you're seeing things like South Korean shows like Squid Game as the most viewed, you know, uh, shows globally and and really whether it's Money Heist or or really it, it doesn't really matter now. I mean, whether you're in Sydney or whether you're in Israel or whether you're in, you know, New York or London, you know, that the whole world um, is open now to, to great stories and great content. And in often, you know, as interested in shows coming out of markets like Australia or small, you know, traditionally kind of smaller content markets as they are out of the, out of the traditional countries like the US. So really, um, as Hugh said, it's an amazing time. And I, I think we just want to enable, try and enable Australian producers to take their world to, to, to the global market. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing all of that come out of uh, our home here in Australia. And I'm sure it'll do some great stuff for the industry. So, Carl and Hugh, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Thanks Carl. Carl. Thank you. Cheers. Coming up next, Guardian Australia's Matilda Bosley.
As you'll all probably know by now, we have a federal election on our hands and very quickly approaching. It's an election that young Australians are set to pay a large part in with the Australian Electoral Commission reporting on Monday we saw a record amount of new registrations to vote. Here to discuss how The Guardian is using different avenues to inform and engage people in politics and news, not only at election time but beyond, is Melbourne-based reporter Matilda Bosley. Welcome. Hello. Glad to be here. Glad to see you in a uh, Baby Yoda, um, what is it, what would you refer to it as, a Udi? It's, it's an Udi, yeah, although, you know, maybe we can't give them too much free advertising, really. <laughs> well, been, yeah, oh, well, that, that's the brand name, all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a, a, a large oversized dressing gown. <laughs> So, um, Matilda, as part of your job at The Guardian, you run the uh, the TikTok account, which has, uh, I think, uh, as of today, around 167,000 followers. How, first of all, how, how did this role come about? Was it, I guess, that was the initial plan and how did the, the bosses respond to you kind of taking on the, the, the Guardian's TikTok account? Yeah, so I had had this idea sort of for the first year working and was very like nervous, like maybe one day I can mention that we should do TikToks. And we had a TikTok account, but we was mostly just being used to post, kind of repost uh, other news clips and, and stuff like that, kind of I guess the more traditional way that a lot of newsrooms were using TikTok accounts. And eventually I sort of managed to get a little bit of free time and then made a few of these just on my own personal account, trying to just do a bit of a news explainer, pretty um, basic sort of stuff. But it ended up really catching on. And uh, even just on, you know, my account, which I think I had, you know, 15 followers at the time, there seemed to be a real appetite for actual, like, well-paced, you know, snappy news explainers. I think we were just talking about like COVID lockdowns and things like that. Um, and, you know, I sort of brought that to my editors and was like, let's let's do it. And they were like, oh, yeah, no, let's do it, which was really great. I think I definitely overthought that. But they were super kind of supportive of it. And then, yeah, we've just sort of gone from there. And it's actually been it's been really um, interesting how well it's sort of been received and I think um, – kind of goes to speak to the appetite that like young people actually do have for news content yeah i mean you've you've on along the way received a lot of praise for the way that you can kind of um convey or get across in a very digestible manner often quite serious information or news to um to i guess the the growing following is there a particular tactic that you set out to do or are you just kind of doing what kind of feels right and what you would want to as a as a sort of young reporter um be being offered I think the way that I think about the TikToks is really that I know that sometimes I'll see a headline or see a news issue um, that I want to read and I'll click on it and I'm realising that I'm sort of jumping in 20 chapters into the conversation and I don't really know what's going on. I haven't been following it, especially, you know, this happens to me when I've been off for three days, you know, not focusing on the news. Sort of, I, I can kind of only imagine how difficult it is if you're not just constantly tuned into the news cycle. And the way I look at the TikToks is really as like a primer 
that means that you can then go read the article. You know, like um, yeah. it's, it's a quick explanation. It's minute long. You get the basics. You get the sort of lay of the land and then you can go and, you know, from that point forward sort of meaningfully engage in other media that you see about this from now on, you know. So it's kind of a the way I look at it is really sort of like getting people up to speed on the important things. And I think where that, you know, really is beneficial is when you do have things that are going on that are weirdly complicated but have been happening for long enough that, you know, uh, the news articles aren't going to sit down and spend 10 paragraphs of their, you know, limited word count every single time explaining. So, you know, the Sri Lankan... Um, the Sri Lankan economic crisis was a big one for that. There was heaps of news articles all coming out, but like this has been going on for years. And I kind of found myself being like, well, I wish there was just like a one, like a little catch up thing. And I'm like, no, wait a second, Matilda, that's your job. Uh, so make it. And usually <laughs> when I'm wishing that I had my own TikTok is a good sign that I need to make a TikTok. So are you seeing yourself more as a TikToker or a reporter these days? What does it kind of come down to? Oh, <laughs> or no, maybe you're trailblazing that new path. Look, I feel like there's a lot of, um, you know, I, there's there's often a divide between that. I just, what I see myself as is very much reporting on TikTok. It's just, it's yeah. the medium that, you know, um, I'm using at the moment and as well as, you know, other reporting that I'm doing in between. But um, yeah, no, no, I think that's sort of an important part of it, which is that it, as much as you have to understand the medium and you have to understand the culture of the app strictly, it's about... Yeah, it's it's about the news and I think there's that obviously that constant conversation that goes on between like, oh, should reporters be a brand or whatnot, you know, which is constantly debated and I think, you know, you always have to like having a familiar face on TikTok is helpful. It makes people engage. The app is all about sort of going with people and hearing about their interests and stuff like that. So I think, you know, there's there's a benefit for the fact that, you know, we have a consistent person doing it but at the end of the day it's kind of, you know, facts first definitely. Yeah. I mean, you are allowed to, or you have, the, I guess, the freedom to put a lot of your own personality into the the work you produce. Do, ha, has there been, I guess, from the editorial side of things, uh, what has the response been? Are, are there, is this an area that they're, they're potentially looking to invest more in? I mean, we haven't really seen it anywhere else in Australia as of yet. Yeah, I, look, I think it's definitely something that, you know, everyone's starting to get interested in like I think definitely you know I'm, I'm not sure I'm I, I wouldn't be so um conceited to think that I had much to do with it but I'm definitely seeing there's a lot more Australian news broadcasters getting on TikTok and doing that content and you know definitely moving more towards the hosted stuff that we tend to do I think a lot of people um jump on and and do that sort of hosted stuff and then realize the kind of weirdly extreme workload that it actually creates um and uh you know that realize that it's actually a a fairly large amount of um of a job to do uh but you know I think more and more people are recognizing that this is where the conversation is I mean what every politician nowadays is talking on TikTok you know Scott Morrison's got a TikTok it's not going well for him but he's there you know like there's (laughs) lots of the conversation is happening on TikTok now for young people for better or for worse probably for worse but like um you know it's it's about meeting people where they're at and I think that it is really important that newsrooms invest in that. And I think we are going to be seeing that more and more and more and more as, you know, as we, and I think definitely the election is sort of supercharging that definitely. And um, for the election cycle specifically, you're doing a sort of video explainer series. Is that right? Could you just tell us a bit about that one? 
Yeah, completely. So we're um, basically, yeah, creating a suite of videos that the sort of idea is if you're a first-time voter or a maybe a veteran voter that kind of uh, often just wings it a little bit, uh, just explaining what the whole election process is. And I think, you know, that's a big thing, which is that we have all this assumed knowledge, often by virtue of only having 90 seconds or 300 words to tell a story. And, you know, sometimes it pays to like go back and be like, no, this is how preferential voting works. And this is what voting below the line means and stuff like that. So that's one big thing that I'm very excited about coming into the election that we're, yeah, creating. It's it's called Voting 101, this big sort of series. That's The idea is once you get to election day, if you've watched all the videos, you'll uh, at least at least at the very least know how to get the democracy sausage but also hopefully how to make sure that your vote completely counts and you're voting for who you want to vote for and just finally are there any other sort of avenues or areas or platforms that you see as potentially an avenue for i guess reaching or engaging with some of these young people that might not be looking to traditional media sources anymore yeah, like I think there's lots of people doing really interesting things. I know Cam Wilson from Crikey does a weekly Twitch stream where he talks about mm-hmm. sort of news and stuff like that, and that's a way that people, you know, often get their news. I think live streaming is is very labour-intensive and you need to be very, like, prepared beforehand because, you know, you don't have time to stop and fact-check and stuff like that. But, like, the amount of people who sort of, you know, sit down to make dinner and will pop on a live stream and listen to stuff, um, you know, that's such a common thing and, you know, it does doesn't only just have to be whatever watching people play Minecraft like people will listen to a discussion of news from someone that they like you know and I think obviously there's pitfalls to that sort of personality-based journalism to a certain degree but also you know it can be used really effectively and like if you build a relationship with your audience and you you know they are invested in the way that you tell the news I think that that's a good way to help people feel like big complicated topics are more digestible so you know live streaming Instagram stories we're seeing just all of these sort of different ways and it's all about like bringing news to people rather than requiring them to, you know, type in www. you know, your homepage URL. Um, and I think that's kind of, I don't know, we're seeing it more and more, but I think it's it's really quite vitally important. Well, Matilda, a fascinating area for sure. And I'm looking forward to seeing what, what you're going to produce as the uh, election rolls on. Thanks for joining me. Cool. Thank you so much. Next up, IAB Australia's Gay Leroy on investment opportunities, the talent crunch, privacy, cookies, and connected TV. CEO of the Interactive Advertising Bureau of Australia, Gay Leroy. Welcome, Gay. Hey, Carl. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. So, um... I guess a good starting point would be the the IAB was initially launched with the aim of encouraging investment in the, 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 the sort of area. Now that that is firmly established, what do you sort of see as the overarching goal or purpose of the IAB right now? Yeah, we've definitely moved from when we were set up, I think digital advertising was about 4 or 5% of the market, so it was all about growth. Um I guess growth is still important, but it's more of a diversified and sustainable um, growth. So making sure that um, I guess all sides of the supply chain are, are getting what they want out of the market. So publishers getting a fair deal across a whole lot of publishers, but also increasingly we think about the, the buy side and advertisers making sure that they're confident in their investment, they're willing to try new things, and they've got the right tools in their kit to um, assess how well their investment's going. 
Yeah, and uh, now obviously the investment is firmly established there, as you mentioned. Where do you see, I guess, now moving forward into 2022 and beyond, things looking a bit more stable? Where are the real big opportunities coming from now? Yeah, it's uh, we had very healthy growth over over COVID, so we we're a little bit different to other channels. So there was a little bit of a, a blip early on, but last year we saw over thirty five percent growth in market, um, and there, there was growth in all areas. Um, video has been hot forever; it feels like now, but at least the last three or four years, uh, video has been the big 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 growth factor. In fact, my, my PR agent always says, you know, I need another headline rather than video is, you know, on fire. <laughs> uh, but we are starting to see some interesting areas crop up both locally and globally. Um, the US released their calendar year report um, a week or so ago, um, and they're now tracking digital audio investment. Um, and that was the highest growing ad format for uh, 2021. Now, obviously, it's a lot smaller base than video, but you are seeing some really high growth in other areas. Um, the other area that we've sort of got is one of the top of the pop type areas for the next few years. Um, and everyone's got a slightly different definition of this one, but it's it's retail media. Yeah. Um, so we've obviously seen cartology and market for a while, seen all the highs going on with Coles Media. Um, you've got Amazon in the mix, uh, but there's a few other players that are obviously looking at this, you know, expanding their, um, you know, their revenue channels to a, to an area where media can be quite a high margin area. Um, and as they're moving towards e-commerce and data collection, it makes a lot of sense. So there'll be a few players popping up in that space, which will be really interesting. What do you sort of see as the, the kind of, I guess, ceiling of retail media in Australia? Because, you know, we do have obviously a much smaller population than, um, for example, America, where some of these huge brands are sort of uh, almost making themselves their own channels. And what, what would be the sort of interaction you would have directly with these brands as opposed to an agency? I think it'll be really interesting to see how the blurring of, I guess, trade investment that a lot of FMCGs would already make with um, the big retailers and how that sort of blurs in with media. So I think there's there's huge potential. Again, it'll come down to definition of what's a media spend and what's not a media spend. Um, and it's something I think about a lot, particularly when we're pulled out, pulling together the PwC report. Uh, what is media, um, and it is getting blurry and blurry. But, look, huge potential. And and we've seen a growth over the last couple of years in um, people investing in, um, with the growth of e-commerce, the, the bottom of the funnel as well as the top of the funnel. Um, so you're seeing retail media, um, affiliate marketing, all those types of outlets that really can um, help anyone selling a product understand, you know, at least that end of the attribution chain, what's going on. So I know I haven't answered your question. I, I'm not going to pick a number because <laughs> it's too blurry, but there's huge potential there. We need a number on record. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Not yet. laughs> another Another one, I guess, in recent weeks, um, I saw you at the Future of TV advertising. We bumped into each other there a few weeks ago. Out of that, Connected TV has sort of been one of the big discussion points in recent weeks. 
Um, I, I guess one of the main sort of points to note, uh, it is an inevitable probably full transfer across to connected TV at some point in the near future, but one of the criticisms has been that the product still is not really matching the progress there. What what do you think needs to be done in, in order to deliver a better experience and a better ad experience on those platforms? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of investment, it's doing incredibly well, but you, you're right, that consumer experience is, look, and it is a lot better than it was a few years ago, so I think we have to give everyone a bit credit that it's, it's definitely um, come a long way. Um, we're doing a lot of work locally and globally on on standards that do try and improve the technical delivery element um, and making sure that the frequency capping, that the management of um, ad pods, so, you know, how that space is used um, gives a lot more flexibility for advertisers to do sequencing of creative, better frequency management. So it, it, it is coming. Um, it's just... You know, it's grown so quickly um, and the level of investment is so great that some of the tech is just catching up, but um, it will continue to grow. Those sell-through rates, you know, for BVOD are incredibly high already. Um, we see YouTube, you know, as a big player in the market. And, and I think this conversation came up at the future of TV, but in other markets you're seeing a lot more inventory uh, from other other areas than those two um, particular um, inventory sources. So I think in Australia we'll start seeing, you know, invent other inventory sources, but hopefully we'll have the support of really good ad tech to make that consumer experience even better. How do you sort of, I guess, more generally see the state of ad tech in Australia? Is I guess are we in a healthy place right now or is there anything, you know, that potentially um, you see as worrying Oh, look, there's a few things in the market. I guess there's the report from the ACCC on, on ad services that we're working very closely with all our members um, and the government on, so making sure the level of transparency is there um, that's required by agencies and advertisers. So uh, we're working very closely with the AANA and the MFA to make sure um, that we can answer government questions on that. And then I guess the biggest challenge for ad tech overall and most plays in ad tech are the changes to identity, um, changes to cookies, changes to ATT. So there's a lot of businesses that are um, redeveloping products, rejigging their um, their infrastructure to make sure they're fit for purpose when we, we lose all those signals. So that's, that's ad tech's biggest challenge overall um, and it impacts all players in the chain because... We're going to have a change in targeting, change in retargeting, and and most importantly, or as importantly, a change in in measurement and understanding, again, what's happened with that investment. So um, you see a lot of M&A sort of work in in ad tech overseas. It's been very hot over the last couple of years, Um, lots of mergers, and they usually come up with some weird new name for the the, um, combined body. Um, and I think that will continue for the next few years as some of those companies will need scale. Um, and, you know, people are even buying people for talent. You know, there's such a crunch on talent that they'll buy good engineering teams, um, you know, bring them together from different markets to, to make a sort of a super ad tech company. Yeah, um, just kind of, I guess, 
staying on one aspect there. You said uh, in January in response to the Government's Privacy Act review discussion paper that some of the proposals um, would have the potential to to stifle innovation and put Australian businesses at a competitive disadvantage to those overseas. Where, Where do you sort of see a healthy balance lying moving forward between, I guess, um, continuing innovation in the Australian art market, but also respecting and protecting consumers' privacy and rights. Yeah, and look, you know, respecting privacy is is number one. We we felt that within the report from the government, which 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 was a fairly broad discussion paper, so they weren't definitely saying all of these pieces would come into mm-hmm. play. Uh, but we, you know, had to look at it as as one piece, and and if everything that was recommended in that paper had been implemented, it definitely would have made things very hard to operate, and also at times hard to actually protect privacy. Which, which sounds weird, but often you do have to track someone to know that you shouldn't target them with certain things. <laughs> so we were, we were a little worried that some of the recommendations went well beyond uh, what was in GDPR. Um, and there are, you know, GDPR is not perfect, uh, yeah. but we felt that there were areas that had gone a little bit too far and were pointing in areas that made Australia a little bit hard um, to operate with. So we want to make sure as a nation that we're, really easy to deal with um, that we're, you know, in a global economy that we can we can make the most of that. So those conversations with government will continue. Um, there'll obviously probably be a little bit of a breather while we've got an election coming into play. Uh, but it's a, it's a healthy conversation with government, with advertisers, with marketers um, to try and get that balance right and trying to get... Um, legislation that's built for the future which is a really tricky thing to make sure that you know devices change signals change um, that we don't have to go back to the drawing board and um, wait sort of three or four years for new legislation to allow innovation to occur yeah and then uh, also uh, another uh, kind of area you touched on just before cookies sort of um will will be saying goodbye to them at the end of at the end of next year third sorry third party cookies it would be interesting to kind of get um the sort of IAB positioning on where things go from there and how you potentially uh, rebuild some of those areas that might be lost from that yeah, and, and look, it's it's not just cookies. I mean, we've seen over the last year the changes with Apple, so ATT, so we've already had, you know, experience of losing certain signals and seeing what it does for, for inventory. Um, but cookies going away will, you know, firstly, the, the industry will be fine, so <laughs> there's a lot of people panicking, but there will be rebuilding. There, there may be some less targeted opportunities at an individual level for areas, for, for sites, for um, areas without first-party data. Um, but we're also developing some really, really clever ways of um, targeting through context and making sure that um, ad experience for consumers' environment is great, as well as giving advertisers the signals that they need. Um, it's it's hard to know exactly what the end, end sort of picture will look like. We're still in exploration mode. Google just changed um, a lot of their plans with the privacy sandbox. Um, I don't know, it feels like a long time ago, but it was probably a few months ago. So there's a lot of testing going on there. Um, overall, there will be some big changes. There will be some areas where it will be a little bit more mass targeting. 
Um, there will be a lot of power for people who do have great first-party data. Um, but having said that, publishers, if they don't have the value exchange to collect data, shouldn't just collect it for the sake of it. So, yeah. again, it's respecting consumers, understanding that value exchange. Um, and for everyone in the in the mix at the moment, it's really testing. While we still have third-party cookies sort of just hanging on, um, people should be basically, you know, it feels like the IT guys, but, you know, turn it on, turn it off and, and see what the difference is and, and doing doing those tests right now. Love that IT crowd reference there. So um, <laughs> one, one of the probably the biggest things um, happening in, in, in your side of things this year is the switch from Nielsen to Ipsos, which is um, – is the new iris system set to go live this quarter is that right um so we're in we're in building phase at the moment so there's a, a wonderful media quality panel being built at the moment uh publishers are all um tagging up madly um with their data so data's being collected um and then we'll we'll roll out the sort of data from this quarter um you know going into the to the beginning of the next financial year but we're um, testing, checking data. It's a huge change when you've been with one provider for yeah. sort of 10 plus years in the market to go with another one. But um, we're really excited with the um, the work that we're seeing so far and particularly seeing it live in the UK and seeing what it's offering in market at the moment. It's it's nice not going first for a change, I must say, as a, as a measurement um, currency so that we can see it, you know, the, the physical product in market being used by agencies, being integrated in the system. So um, we'll um, be, be in market with training and information uh, very shortly. Yeah, I mean, it would be great if you could, I guess, run us through what I guess we can sort of expect from it and what are the some of the key differences might be. Yeah, so um there's some similarities i'll start with the similarities so again it's sort of a hybrid product as nielsen was so you've got an underlying panel which makes sure that you capture um any sites any apps of you know a, a decent size that are being used by australians um and then there's tagging for those publishers who really want the um thorough accurate and particularly off-platform um uh, information in market. Uh, one of the big differences with the off-platform is that Apple will be involved, so there'll be that extra um, Apple Apple News um, audience coming into publishers, with the, which they've been desperate for. Um, and then from a um, data point of view, um, you'll again get um, daily volume data and monthly audience data. The monthly audience data will go a little bit deeper so as well as having that Apple information, the amount of information on demographics, interests, the profiling of, of people will be will be deeper within that product. Um, and then later in the year, we are incredibly excited that uh, we're working with Oztam to bring in CTV data. So it'll be yep. one of the first places in the world that we can see um, video across all those digital devices, deduped. Um, whether that's broadcast a video, YouTube, or anyone else who's tagged up um, to have that information. So advertisers and agencies have been begging for that information for a long while. So it'd be incredibly important to be able to show that um, unique audience across the different video players. I think we've been pretty keen for that as well. So I think um, everyone's <laughs> going to be 
pretty pleased when that that comes around. Um, and another, I guess, point which has been um, well and truly flogged at this point uh, has been the talent crunch this year. And I guess um, ho- hoping that that uh, we'll get some, I guess, sort of relief from incoming uh, overseas talent at some point soon. But then locally, you've also got um, the a, a talent careers fair launching this year as a sort of solution um, from your end as one of the leading industry bodies. If you could, I guess, tell us a little bit about that as well, that would be awesome. Yeah, look, I, I know we have been flogging it and I am hoping we'll get some overseas talent, but we are losing people as well. So we have to, um, I guess, make sure we keep looking at, at different ways of bringing talent into the market. Um, we've just um, hired a very senior learning and development director who started with us a week or so ago. So that's how sort of seriously we're taking um, you know, the need to um, attract talent, build capability in market. As you said, we're doing a careers fair, which will be super fun. It feels a little bit American, but um, it's a way of getting, <laughs> um, I guess, not only the faculties that know about advertising as an option. So we do a lot of work with marketing departments, comms departments, but the need in our industry for data scientists, for engineering people, we're competing against a lot of different um different industries to get that top talent so anything we can do to make them aware that this is a fantastic industry to work in um, we'll be doing that through the careers fair we've got a couple of announcements coming out soon very soon this is a tease um, where we're trying to bridge the gap between university and work readiness so we're um, Mm -hmm. working with a range of different providers to just make sure that people, you know, come into the market with some platform skills, some um, experience of all our myriad of acronyms so they don't look, you know, befuddled for the first few months Um, because we're seeing so many companies, which is great, actually hiring grads and interns, which hadn't been happening for a while. So we are getting sort of people fresh out of uni, fresh out of TAFE even into the industry, whereas previously everyone was looking for the magic person who already had two to three years experience and and we tended to get them from overseas. So the fact that a lot of organisations are investing in new talent is fantastic. We just need to make sure we support them when they get in the industry and they're here and that they know they've got the space to learn um, because everyone is rather busy day to day. Yeah. And I guess uh, sort of touching on something we spoke about just before we started recording, we, we were talking about sort of events returning in 2022 and the, the kind of scale and, and frequency of them. And one of the things that I sort of happened within COVID while, you know, people in those sort of entry-level roles and junior roles maybe weren't afforded some of those opportunities that they would have got starting up in agency life or something like that uh, it sort of was a leveler in in sorts because no one was going to these events and now and you know there was there was equal access but now with the return of events maybe that will be going away and they sort of become a little bit more exclusive how do we i guess ensure that there is a sort of hybrid a hybrid exposure yeah. for for people in these roles moving forward 
Yeah, well, look, I think we're, we're used to recording things now. So with with all our events, we will remain hybrid for, for most of our events. It's, it's obviously not the same as being in person, but um, at least the content's there. Again, with our events, we, we try and make them free or low cost for members. We, we try and see ourselves as a community organisation. Um, but I think it's up to every event organiser just really think, you know, can I give access to a certain amount of my um, sessions, you know, the ones that might not be booked out, you know, can you bring some students in? We'll be doing that at Careers Fair, making sure um, that not only can they access um, content but they can sit in the same room and, and mingle. Um, so it's just keeping it top of mind. And, it, and I guess it's not only juniors, but it's interstate people. We do a lot of work with Brisbane agencies who have, who have loved having sort of that more equal access um, to, to content and, you know, even on Zoom calls with their interstate colleagues, making sure we um, keep thinking of, of, of those who may not be able to attend every event. And also mm-hmm. it's exhausting attending events. I'm, I'm getting used to it again. I, I think the whole industry has had it. an event. Um, and it's, it's, it's exciting for the first couple of days and then it's like, oh, my God, humans again. I have to keep talking, um, which is a good problem to have, but it is um, we're rebuilding those muscles. Yeah, I think definitely a bit of adapting, but we'll get there. Um, and and just finally, Gay, a lot has been made over the past twelve or so months about the emergence of uh, attention as a metric. Uh, we have we've seen um, deals with seven and nine and studies into the into the space. I'd be interested to hear your, I guess, take on it and whether we might see it sort of incorporated in the IAB's measurements at any point. Um, it, it's something that our, we have an Ad Effectiveness Council and, and they're currently in market with a survey to try and understand the landscape, Who, who's using what, what sort of metrics are really making a difference, what's needed. I think we're a little way off um, standardisation, um, as in building something into a currency, uh, but we'll, we'll come out with a white paper on that in a couple of months. Um, look, I think it's super interesting. I worry that at the moment it feels quite binary in the sense that the longer the attention, the better, uh, which, it, which is not always the case. So as long as attention metrics are being mixed with other outcome-based metrics um, and we're checking that correlation between the two. Um, the other, my other little bugbear, and, and, and it's really not the audio people paying me for this, but... Um, there is other than visual attention as well. So we need to make sure that, you know, yes, it's important for the eyes on the screen for video, um, but attention can be garnered in a, in a few different ways. So yeah. um, just um, yeah, keep that in mind. But super interesting, very different ways of measure, measuring things. Um, very competitive at the moment. So we're just trying to sit, you know, pull back and look at the methodology, look what's right for the market. Um, before we come out with, I guess, any best practice in that area. Gay, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. See you soon. And that's it for another week of the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and check our website, mumbrella.com.au, for more content and updates. Thanks to all of today's guests, Matilda, Hugh, Carl and Gay. See you next week. <laughs>